So many questions. Good uh, title for this series, and I hope a good series. We really do receive a lot of questions here at Orchard Hill, just almost on a daily basis. Some of them are sort of uh, funny. You know, we get calls, people saying, what time is your 11 o'clock service? That, that sort of thing. Or the help, I'm lost, where is your church uh, kind of questions. Um, but we, got, we get a lot of questions, too, from people, you know, the questions sort of coming out of their suffering and the pain in their life, and they're really struggling for some answers. And so we really take this, uh, this uh, series really seriously, and we hope it's uh, going to be helpful to, uh, to all of you. Um, we we kind of clumped questions together sort of by topic, and one of the topics that people had questions about was about the church, particularly the history of the church, not just this congregation, but questions like, you know, uh, what de- what denomination are we a part of, and uh, how did how did the church develop, and why are there so many denominations, so many different kinds of groups. So since that's a, a topic that I frequently cover in our membership classes, it was suggested maybe that I... Uh, share about that today. So we're going to begin looking kind of at the history of the church, and then uh, we're going to look at the history of the Bible, how the Bible came to be as well. So it um, it makes for kind of a strange teaching, but I hope it will is one that will be helpful to you. So we're we're actually going to go back and start right at the time of the New Testament, when Jesus came, uh, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. This was. The fulfillment of, of the whole goal of the Old Testament, of God's choosing a people, beginning to reveal himself through them. Imagine what it would have been like for, for those Israelites in Jesus' day. I was thinking about it. They had waited for the Messiah about as long as it has been since the time of Jesus till today. You know, thousands of years they have waited, generation after generation. Then the Messiah comes, Jesus. But he is so different than this sort of expectation that had grown up around the idea of God sending this promised one that they didn't believe. The Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, although I think the hope was that this would be the fulfillment of Judaism, other than a few Jews, not many people accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so we know that that's one of the things that leads to his arrest and uh, crucifixion and then his resurrection. So for those first Jewish Christians, those first followers of Jesus who are Jewish, it becomes a very difficult time. They're living in the midst of this Jewish culture, but believing in Jesus, and they're being persecuted because of their faith. And, and a couple of good things happened sort of because of that, God bringing some good out of it. One is it, it made it a lot easier for those first Christians to go beyond Judaism and to reach out to people who are non-Jews, or the Bible calls them Gentiles, just means someone who's not Jewish. Jewish. So one of the good things that came out of that was that they reached out to non-Jews, to Gentiles. They took seriously, sort of because God forced them to, you know, a couple of those powerful things that Jesus said. You know, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right before he goes back to heaven, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one of the good things that happens, and it was a hard step for them to take, was that they reached out to Gentiles. 
And the second thing was it sort of forced them to spread out because there was so much persecution in, in Jerusalem and in other Israelite cities. A lot of Christians just left Israel completely and went to other cities. And as a result of that, they shared their faith. And there were churches planted in all of those areas, particularly around the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea in the area that would now be the Middle East. And so God's bringing some good things out of that. The Christian church tends to, uh, continues to be persecuted by the Jews and by the Roman Empire, the Roman government, because it was considered to be atheist, because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods or the Caesar as God. And so that kind of continues for the next couple hundred years. And then in the early 300s A.D., uh, a really amazing thing happens. The Roman emperor, whose name was Constantine, becomes a Christian. He had a mother whose name was Helena, who was a Christian. And tradition says through a vision that he had, he became a Christian. And so one of the things that he did then was to declare that the Christian faith would be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so suddenly they went from being this sort of uh, persecuted minority to being everybody. So it was like if you're a part of the Roman Empire, well, hey, you're a Christian. You know, It's a little bit, I think, what we have faced uh, sometimes in the United States. You know, when you ask someone if they're a Christian, they say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. You know, The two kind of become synonymous. And so as a, as a result of that, for a lot of people, their faith... Um, was less personal and I think less real because it was just a part of the, of the culture of the empire. Now also during this time, uh, Christians didn't yet, you know, have the Bible, at least didn't have access to it. And we're gonna talk more about how the Bible came to be in a, in a few minutes. But they tried to find some ways to help people understand and remember the Christian faith. And they did it in three really interesting ways that, um, that I want to share with you. One of them was that they encouraged people to go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And Constantine's mother, this woman Helena that I mentioned, did an amazing thing. She went to Israel, to the Holy Land, and she tried to identify the places where the events that are recorded in the life of Jesus took place, where he was born, you know, where he was crucified, where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, those kinds of things. She probably didn't get them all right, but at least she identified places, and then she would build you know, like churches often or shrines in those places. And the idea was then that a person, a Christian person could go to the Holy Land and they'd be able to identify those places and remember the things that Jesus had said and done in those particular places. That was a big help to people. Second thing may, may surprise you, and, and that is the use of stained glass windows. You, you probably thought the stained glass windows were just sort of decoration, but they weren't. They were intended to be teaching advice, uh, objectives. So if you were building a big uh, cathedral, for instance, and you could put 20 stained glass windows in them, and, and each one depicted a scene from the life of Jesus, well, think about what a help that would be to people who didn't have access to the New Testament. They'd remember those stories from Jesus all the time, you know looking at those pictures in the stained glass windows. Third thing that they did was they had creeds. Creeds are just basic statements of faith that people recite and, and sort of build upon. Um, 
there are places in the New Testament where it seems like maybe what's being written is, was maybe one of those early creeds. Maybe the first one was just the simple statement, Jesus is Lord. And over time, they developed more, more creeds as ways for people to remember and understand the Christian faith. Uh, one of the best known ones would be the Apostles' Creed. It's called that not because it's um, written by the apostles, but because it reflects the, the faith and belief of the apostles. And so that was one that was written that people could memorize and learn, and it would help them you know, to have a sort of a foundation for their faith. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and Christian churches around the world still use the Apostles' Creed. It's, uh, it's something we don't use too often here at Orchard, but from time to time. When Sally and I got married, we uh, were attending a church that said the Apostles' Creed every day. And uh, Sally, coming from a Baptist background where apparently they don't believe the Apostles' Creed, uh, had never had never memorized the Apostles' Creed. So she worked really hard to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And just when she got it memorized, we stopped going to that church. And uh, But today, I bet she could stand up and say the Apostles' Creed. In fact... No. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to ask all of you to stand and we're going to we're going to say the Apostles Creed together. Now, let me before you stand up, let me just say, let me just say a word about it because there are a couple phrases in there that, uh, that often raise questions. One is it says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And that word Catholic doesn't, doesn't refer to Roman Catholic. It, it's, it means worldwide or universal. So it's saying we believe that, that, you know, the church is not just in the United States. It's everywhere there are followers of Jesus Christ. And then the statement, the communion of the saints, uh, saints just refers to Christians, people who are followers, believers of Jesus Christ, and that they that there is a fellowship, a bond that binds us together in the church. So the words are going to be here on the screen now. Let's uh, stand and and let's declare this together. Remembering, you know, that that for almost two thousand years, Christians have been affirming their faith using these words. Let's do them together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Um, so the church, particularly in Europe, continues to grow as its uh, you know official part, its um, the seat of authority is in Rome under um, what was believed to be the successor to Peter, who was called the Pope. And the church becomes very, uh, very rich and very powerful, very influential in Europe. Um, now, I need to step away from the teaching for, for just a minute and talk about sort of something else. A few um, months ago, I did a teaching on the priesthood of believers and and that teaching was uh, very offensive 
uh, and upsetting and disappointing, I think, to some of uh, Orchard Hills folks who are former Roman Catholics or current Roman Catholics or who have family who are still in the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and I apologize for that. There aren't a lot of Sundays where I say, I wish I could have a do-over, but that's one. If I could do it again, I would, I would teach it in a lot of different ways. So I apologize for what seemed to be a, a real attack on the Roman Catholic Church. That was not my intention. I, I hold the Roman Catholic Church in very high regard. I've often said that I, I think I have more in common with a Bible-believing Catholic, Roman Catholic, than I do with a liberal Presbyterian, you know, the, the denomination in which I grew up. So as we get now to to the time of the Middle Ages, again, I'm going to have to say some things that are going to sound very negative about the Roman Catholic Church. Um, But it's not sort of us looking at them and being critical. Them is us. You know, that was really the only church there was when we get into the time of the Middle Ages. So um, as often happens when when churches are... um, big and rich and influential and political, that a lot of practices just kind of sifted into the church that were not very biblical. And and most people did not have Bibles. The Bibles that were there were the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, and people couldn't read Latin. So the only people really who could read the Bible, who had access to them, were the priests. And, and there were practices in the Roman Catholic Church, in us as Christians, um, that, that priests, some of the priests were really questioning whether they were biblical, uh, they certainly weren't taught in the Bible, and maybe they were even contrary to things that the Bible did talk. And the example that's usually given, and it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, um, was what they called selling of indulgences. And, an, an indulgence was a way of getting out of purgatory more quickly for yourself or for some loved one and being able to go to heaven more quickly. And you could buy those. And in a, in a sense, it was a way of raising money for the, uh, for the church. And I just wish I'd thought of it first. We'd, uh... So some of the priests looked at some of these practices and, and they said... We, we need to talk about these things. And a guy named Martin Luther, who was a priest in Germany, made a list of 95 issues that he thought the church ought to discuss, nailed them up on the door of the church where he was a pastor in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and we mark that event as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Protestant because they were protesting some of the things going on in the church. Reformation because... They were not wanting to leave the church. They were wanting to reform the church in a more biblical way. Again, uh, as sort of what happened with the Jews and the first followers of Jesus, the Roman Catholic Church was not willing at that time to make those kinds of changes. And those people, like Luther, were excommunicated. And so they were sort of forced to begin another branch of Christianity. And so sort of for the first time in, in the history of the church, you have two big uh, separate branches of Christianity. You have Roman Catholicism and then you have Protestantism. And so as this process is taking place, so someone like Luther is leading people in this um, reformation, that grows into the, to be the Lutheran church. The same process is taking place in, in Scotland under a guy named John Knox. That becomes the Presbyterian church. Same thing is happening in, um, in Holland. And that church is sort of adopted as the state church of Holland, and it's called the Dutch Reformed Church. And that Dutch heritage church is 
the, the church from which our denomination has grown. So we're part of a denomination called the Reformed Church in America. It used to be called the Dutch Reformed Church. So now there are about a thousand congregations like ours in this denomination um, in the United States. And they, and they trace their lineage back to the, the time of the Reformation and the things that were uh, taking place there. Um, a couple, a couple things to say about kind of unique or important to know about the church. One is that in Reformed churches and in, I would say, a lot of um, mainline uh, Protestant churches, the kind of government we have is sort of from the bottom up. It's ruled by elders. The word elder is presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. And so... You can have church government in one of two ways. One is you can have it sort of with all the authority at the top, and then the authority is sort of delegated down. Or you can have the authority at the bottom and sort of delegated up. And in a church like ours, a denomination like ours, rule is by the elders. So we have a board of elders, our leadership team, who are really the final authority here in at Orchard Hill Church. You know, they are the boss of the staff. They are the ones who... Uh, who are responsible for the decisions and the life of the church. Um, and, and so that's an important thing for us to remember. The second thing that I think is really important for us to hang on to is, is the authority of Scripture, the Bible. And, and what we are trying to do is to be faithful to the Word of God. And so there's a real sense in which the elders are responsible to see that that happens. And I think when you can, when you have questions about that, you know, you can talk to one of the staff, but you can also talk to one of our elders and raise those issues with them because that's their responsibility. The, uh, the true church was, was said it needed to do thing, three things. One was it needed to preach the Word of God faithfully. And the second thing was that it needed to uh, celebrate the sacraments, which are baptism and communion. And the third was that it needed to exercise uh, Christian discipline, which means the church is called upon to, to call out sin, to confront it, and, and to, to fight against it. So, as I said, one of, the, one of the huge things that happened was that people didn't have the Bible and what a difference it is for us today. So in the few minutes that are left, I want to talk about how we got the Bible uh, where did it come from? Uh, who decided what's in the Bible and what's not? Aren't, aren't there books of the Bible um, that, that the church has sort of suppressed and didn't allow to be in the Bible? And that's uh, kind of a misreading, I think, of how this all took place. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, the history of the Bible. I would say that, that the two biggest gifts that God gave to the church, the, the New Testament, the Christian church, was the gift of the Holy Spirit, to empower and encourage and guide and do all of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of Christians. And the other is the, is the canon of the, of the New Testament. Um, the word canon, not that kind of canon. That's um, one, one in in the middle. The word canon means a, a ruler or a yardstick or something by which everything is measured. And so the, the standard, you know, by which everything is gauged in terms of theology is the New Testament. So we're talking about the canon of the New Testament, those books that are accepted as being the Word of God for us. How did that come about? Well, right away after the, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, 
um, people began to write down the, some of the sayings of Jesus and to collect them. And some of the people who had been witnesses to what Jesus had done began to write accounts of his life. And so in the New Testament, you know, we have those four Gospels, biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, so a couple of them actually being written by the disciples. And so these were really important to the early church. I mean, think what it would be like, you know... To just hear about Jesus and to believe that he's the Messiah, but you would be so hungry to know more and to understand more what's going on. So during the first, say, 30 or 40 years after the time of Christ, these Gospels are being written and circulated and copied. And and that may seem like a long time to you, but... Two important things about that. One is, it, it ain't so long. 30 or 40 years, I'm coming to understand, is, is not such a long time to remember things. Um, you know, just, a, just a few weeks ago, remember, I told a story about a healing that I had witnessed that took place 40 years ago. And I still remember that so clearly. I, I just can picture the details in my mind. You know, that was not a long time after having spent three years with Jesus you know, for the disciples to begin to write down the account of the life of Jesus. The other thing is that Jesus said when he sent the Holy Spirit that one of the things the Holy Spirit would do for, for these disciples was it would help them to remember the things that Jesus had done, the things that he had said. And so they, they draw together these four uh, Gospels. Now, uh, were there other Gospels and other books written? There were. Um, and they are not included in the Bible for good reason, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they tended to be written much later into the second, third century. They were not written by the people whose names were attached to them, and they were they were very inconsistent with uh, with what was being said in in the in the Gospels that were being recognized. Um, so there were other books. The other part of the New Testament is uh, what we, we would call epistles or letters primarily written by some of the disciples or the early leaders of the church. And those very quickly began to be recognized as not just normal letters of communication, but to also be inspired by God. I want to read you um, a verse from Second Peter that I think is really uh, important. This is Second Peter 3, 15 and 16 it says, um, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I want to make sure you understand. This is Peter, you know, the, the sort of the first leader of the Christian church. And he's saying about Paul's writings, Paul's letters, that they are treated in the same way as other, the other scriptures. The other scriptures for Peter would have been the Old Testament. So what Peter is really saying here is that in the same way that we regard the Old Testament as being the inspired divine word of God, we put the letters, the writings of Paul in that same category, having that kind of uh, authority and power in the church. Um, so the process is taking place by which these Gospels are being copied and distributed by these letters that come from pe- people like Peter or um, or Paul, uh, it would have been so exciting to a church to get one of those and they would have copied it and they would have read it when they'd get together and studied what it meant and share it with others. 
that there's a wide acceptance of these books. And so what happens then is that I believe by the leading of the Spirit of God, the church sort of universally accepts certain writings as being in that same category as the Old Testament, as being the inspired Word of God. And all of that is pulled together then um, in, the, in the middle and late uh, 300s A.D., when, when there are councils that are called together, uh, councils just, you know, meetings of, of leaders in the church. And at one of those councils, a council in Hippo, not that Hippo, Hippo was a city in, in North Africa. And at the council that was held there, one of the things they did was to sort of codify the books that they believed were the canon of the New Testament. And what they did was to recognize what God had already been doing in the hearts of believers. So there there were three criteria that they used. One was, do these writings have apostolic authority? Do they come from the apostles, from uh, people whose source was the apostles, from people who had... Um, the authority and approval of the apostles. Secondly, were they, were they widely accepted? Were they universally accepted by Christians? And third, was their message consistent with what, with what we know to be Christian theology and truth and history? And so the books that they affirmed as being a part of the, uh, the New Testament, as being the canon of the New Testament, were books that fit those uh, criteria. Now I'm going to read you, um, a couple quotes that help me to understand how this takes place, and I hope it will be helpful to you, um, by a couple Christian theologians. Um, the first one, it says, the simple answer is that God decided, the question being, who decided what would be in the Bible? The simple answer is that God decided which books should be in the canon. He is the final determiner. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Again, from uh, a guy named F.F. Bruce, he says, A distinction needs to be made between canonizing and collecting. No man or council can pronounce a word canonical or scriptural, yet man was responsible for collecting and preserving such works. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa, at Hippo, Regius in 393, and at Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. Um, so if, as I look back on, on the church and on the Bible, I would say you know, that the, the, the two big things to me would be, one would be this sort of turning point when, when Christians began to realize that the gospel was for people everywhere and that they were responsible to be light and salt in the world. The process really reminds me of what has taken place here at Orchard Hill over the last 50 years. I mean, these Jewish Christians would have been a lot more comfortable if it just stayed Jews, but they believed God was ta- calling them to move out of that. 
I can't tell you how many times over the 30 years that I've been here, and I know over the whole history of Orchard Hill Church, people have said, okay, if we do that, if we do church that way, if our worship is like that, if we're having that kind of event, that's personally not what I would choose. But if that's what we need to do to reach the campus, to reach the next generation, to reach our community, let's do it. Slogan, you know, whatever it takes, I think has been profoundly important here at Orchard Hill Church. And just as God used that in those early years of the church to reach out, I believe that one of the reasons God has blessed Orchard Hill Church is because those people, you know, over the decades have been willing to sacrifice, in many cases, their own convenience and, and preferences so that we might be a church that helps people, all people, you know, to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty important. The second big thing was to, when the church recognized and closed the canon of the New Testament. So we believe that that the books that God wanted included are included, and that so there are no other books beyond that. So someone may discover some some book that's claiming to be, you know, written by an apostle or something. And and maybe it is, and maybe there's a lot of truth in it. But we believe that the canon of the New Testament is closed, and it's our authority now for how we are to live and what we are to believe. And, you know, I would not have stayed in this church for 31 years had that not been true, that we said that's that's who we are and that's the way we want to want to do church. We covered a lot of ground. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, if you have questions about stuff that we've done today, um, email Sally about that, and she'll <laughs> see what she can do about that. Thanks uh, for listening so attentively. I want us to pray together. Lord, as we look back at, at your faithfulness to your people, the church, you know, generation after generation, you know, century after century, how faithful you have been, and the church today is still desperately in need of your Spirit's power and your holy protection and care. We have brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in many countries of the world today who are being persecuted for their faith, in many cases who are being murdered, churches burnt to the ground, uh, Christians arrested and tortured. Lord God, we believe that we are a part of the church with them, that they are brothers and sisters, and we pray for them. And we pray that you would keep them strong and that you would give them the grace that they need and that you would protect them. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it is our authority. Thank you for the way you not only inspired the writing of this book, but that you miraculously preserved it so that we would have it and that we would have an accurate copy of what it is that you want to say to the church. Those are huge things to us, and we're really grateful for them. So in light of what we've just talked about, in light of what we believe as Christians, as we stated in the Apostles' Creed, now we join together as we worship you in song. Amen.